thank you all very much for having me. And I, I do bring greetings from, uh, from Baylor and uh, my home church, Highland Baptist Church in Waco. Um, and it's, it's an honor to be here at Southeastern. It's my second visit uh, to, to Southeastern. And as usual, I feel like I have tons and tons of uh, digital friends here and, and people I know know from Twitter and Facebook and so forth. Um, I want to talk to you today about George Whitfield uh, in this session. And then um, tonight I'm going to be talking about Ben Franklin. And, and if you know anything about uh, their stories that they are um, sort of the, the religious odd couple of the 18th century. Um, and so talk, not, not only have I done um, books on Whitfield and Franklin, but um, they, they work well together um, as, as uh, these twin uh, religious figures of, of the 18th century. And obviously with Whitfield, uh, someone um, that, that uh, people like us have uh, so much um, to, in common with, and, and as since Whitfield was the most important preacher of the Great Awakening of the 18th century. So, um, start off with a, a story about Whitfield and, and the Great Awakening. On October 12, 1740, in the fading light of a cool autumn evening, a 25-year-old evangelist, George Whitfield, ascended a platform on Boston Common and before him stood 20,000 people. If the crowd estimates were reasonably accurate, this was the largest assembly ever gathered in the history of America, England's American colonies. Boston's entire population on that day was probably about 17,000 people. Whitfield had already seen crowds this massive and even larger in the great city of London, but the teeming New England throngs gathered in the region's small fishing villages and provincial towns amazed him. Sometimes the, the pressing people frightened him too. Um, there were volcanic outbursts of emotion, and he, he regularly had to cut his preaching short, unable to be heard over the cacophonies of weeping and screeching. And at Boston Common, Whitfield implored people to put their faith in Jesus Christ, the kind of sincere faith that their Puritan forefathers had embraced. It didn't matter if their parents were Christians, and it didn't matter if they prayed or attended church or read their Bibles, he said. Whitfield wanted to know if they had experienced the new birth of conversion. Concluding the sermon, his countenance falling, he told them that it was time for him to go. Other audiences needed his gospel preaching too. Numbers, great numbers, melted into tears when I talked of leaving them, Whitfield wrote. He had begun to forge a special bond with the American colonists. Boston people are dear to my soul, he confessed. Reports about this boy wonder began to appear in the colony's newspapers in 1739. And by 1740, Whitfield had become the most famous man in America. Now, remember, in 1740, George Washington was eight years old. If you can ever imagine George Washington being eight years old. Uh, John Adams was four years old. And Thomas Jefferson had not been born yet. Um, ben Franklin's fame as a printer, which did not extend much beyond Philadelphia at that time, 
was enhanced considerably by becoming Whitfield's publisher. Whitfield was probably the most famous man in Britain at that time, too, or at least the most famous aside from uh, King George II. 300 years after his birth, George Whitfield is not entirely forgotten, but his fame is far dimmer now than it was on that fall evening in Boston. Today, Whitfield's renown is surpassed by other evangelical contemporaries, especially Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor-theologian of Northampton, Massachusetts. The sensational success of Whitfield's ministry was both a reflection of and a revolution against the traditional preaching culture of the colonies, especially in New England. In early New England, families routinely attended church multiple times a week to hear lengthy doctrinal sermons read from a manuscript. And a New England colonist who lived to an average age probably heard about 7,000 sermons in his or her lifetime. In spite of Whitfield's relative lack of fame today, there have been a number of biographies written about him. Christian treatments of Whitfield have been highlighted by Arnold Dalimore's monumental two-volume biography written in the 1970s. And I know some of you have read that book. Uh, most U.S. history survey courses and textbooks also mention Whitfield, uh, thanks to two major academic biographies, Harry Stout's The Divine Dramatist, 1991, and Frank Lambert's Peddler and Divinity, 1994. These biographies, as well as a surge of recent studies of the Great Awakening, have established Whitfield as a fixture in the standard narrative of American history. Stout, Lambert, and other scholars have helped us interpret Whitfield within the framework of 18th century Anglo-American culture. Lambert examined Whitfield in light of the consumer revolution of the 18th century. As the peddler in divinity, Whitfield mastered the use of publicity, newspapers, and inexpensive print to promote his preaching tours and the gospel he expounded. Stout on a related theme presented Whitfield as, quote, Anglo-America's first religious celebrity, the symbol for a dawning modern age. Even though Whitfield denounced the theater following his conversion, his background as an actor and familiarity with England's theater culture prepared him, Stout said, for a fabulously successful preaching career. In his two recent books on Whitfield, communication scholar Jerome Mahaffey has expanded earlier proposals by Stout and historian Alan Heimert by considering how Whitfield became the accidental revolutionary or the man most responsible for shaping an American culture primed for the American Revolution. Whitfield was the, quote, central figure in the process by which disparate colonists became Americans, prone to think in zealous adversarial terms about religion, rights, and liberties. Whitfield's awakening may not have caused the revolution, Mahaffey argued, but it had a profound conditioning influence on Americans as the revolution approached. Heimert memorably, memorably argued that whether Jefferson, quote, the enlightened sage of Monticello knew it or not, 
he had inherited the mantle of George Whitfield. So, Whitfield and commerce, Whitfield and religious celebrity, Whitfield and the revolution. All of these arguments have considerable merit, even if I have doubts about certain aspects of them. The main problem with these approaches, however, is that they don't really focus on Whitfield's primary significance or the way that he viewed himself. My argument that I made in my book on Whitfield is straightforward, I think. George Whitfield was the key figure in the first generation of Anglo-American evangelical Christianity. Whitfield and legions of other evangelical pastors and lay people helped to establish a new interdenominational religious movement in the early 18th century, one committed to the gospel of conversion, the new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the preaching of revival across Europe and America. So my work on Whitfield places him fully in the dynamic, fractious milieu of the early evangelical movement. And of course, Whitfield's fame derives substantially from the power and notoriety of his preaching. Indeed, if people know anything about Whitfield, they know that he was a remarkably gifted preacher and evangelist. Scenes from his ministry are among the the most powerful from the whole Great Awakening of the mid-18th century from the titanic throngs he drew to Moorfields and Kennington Common in London as he began his field preaching ministry, to the pressing crowds who came to see him in America. Sometimes, as we've seen, more people came to his meetings in the colonies than the entire population of the town hosting him. To pick one particularly evocative scene, though, Let's consider Whitfield's role in the Cambuslang revival in Scotland in 1742. In that year, intriguing news of awakening came to the itinerant from the small parish of Cambuslang, southeast of Glasgow, where he had not yet preached on an earlier visit he, had, he took to Scotland. Cambuslang's 51-year-old pastor, William McCulloch, reported to Whitfield that under McCulloch's ministry, 300 people in a town of less than 1,000 had come under conviction of sin, and that of those, perhaps 200 had experienced authentic conversion. Many more descended on the town on Sunday mornings, and he estimated crowds numbering as many as 10,000 on recent Sabbaths at Canvas Lang. Note here, by the way, that Whitfield often built upon the momentum generated by the ministry of local pastors like McCulloch. McCulloch pled with Whitfield to come to Cambuslang as soon as possible to follow up on the burgeoning awakening there. Arriving in Edinburgh in early June 1742, Whitfield told McCulloch, using language from 1 Kings 18, that, quote, the cloud is now only rising as big as a man's hand. Yet in a little while, we shall hear a sound of an abundance of gospel rain, which means buckle up. Whitfield finally came to Cambus Lang in July 1742, and over a long weekend, throngs gathered in a natural amphitheater setting 
on a hillside the Scots called a bray near McCulloch's church. Congregants built two wooden frame preaching tents and set up communion tables in the fields. On consecutive days, Whitfield preached to crowds he estimated at 20,000 people. The 21-year-old John Erskine, who would go on to become one of Scotland's leading evangelical ministers, described the Bray as the most commodious place for hearing I ever saw. Although the number of attendees was disputed, Erskine was, quote, certain a voice as near as good as Mr. Whitfield's could have reached a greater number had they been there. On the Sabbath, it came time for those who qualified to take communion. Church members, meaning those who had made a convincing profession of faith in Christ, received small lead tokens by which they gained admission to the tables. Different churches from Scotland to Ulster to the Scots-Irish settlements in America uh, had designed different shapes for these tokens. Some were plain circular pieces with the minister's initials on them. Those used at a great revival elsewhere in Scotland featured two hearts becoming one, just as the believer united with Christ. And McCulloch estimated that perhaps 1,700 of the tens of thousands of attendees received tokens at the July assembly. And Whitfield attempted to help serve the communicants. But as he moved down the line, people got out of their seats and pressed around him, thanking him for coming and sharing prayer requests with him. Lest he become a distraction, he left the tables and allowed the other ministers to finish. Once everyone had been served, the whole assembly gathered before a tent where Whitfield preached on Isaiah 54, 5, thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Although Whitfield preached numerous sermons at Campus Lang, this is the one that converts remembered the best. And it was a standard sermon in Whitfield's preaching repertoire. Um, there was considerable variation between all of Whitfield's uh, preached versions of his sermons and the published one. Um, and that was the case with Thy Maker is Thy Husband. Um, as Whitfield seems to have typically used a memorized sermon outline, uh, but in the estimation of an early Scottish church historian, Whitfield delivered the sermon each time, quote, as his own feelings and a sense of duty prompted. In the published version of the sermon, Whitfield emphasized his simple preaching method. Quote, I came here not to shoot over people's heads, he declared, but to reach their hearts. Accordingly, I shall endeavor to clothe my ideas in such plain language that the meanest or lowliest servant, if God is pleased to give a hearing ear, may understand me. He spoke directly to the correct practice of communion many had just taken, urging ministers only to serve the Lord's Supper to those who had united with Christ in spiritual marriage. Those who received communion in a worthy manner, he exclaimed, were one with Christ and Christ with them, and they dwell, with, they dwell in Christ and Christ in them. 
And going to the matrimonial metaphor of his text, Whitfield insisted that the, quote, poorest and most illiterate person here present may easily know whether or not he is really married to Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he or she could often, though not always, know the time and circumstances under which that union occurred. The day of our espousals is generally a very remarkable day, a day to be had in everlasting remembrance, he noted. Most true believers, he contended, could remember the moment of their conversion just as they would remember their own wedding. Christ was the spiritual husband of every believer. They were Christ's possession, body, and soul. Whitfield's comparison of the believer's union with Christ to earthly marriage was common among early evangelicals, as seen in Isaiah 54, 5, in the Song of Solomon, and in other, other scriptural passages, the theme of marital union between God and his people frequently appeared in scripture as well. Lay people re- resonated powerfully with the itinerant's message. Uh, Margaret Lapp, for instance, an unmarried 29-year-old, heard Whitfield preach first on his initial visit to Scotland in 1741 and found that his evocation of the dangers of hell summoned, quote, great confusion in her. And she also attended his sermon, Thy Maker is Thy Husband. This message, she said, lodged in her mind, staying with her for months and even years afterward. She frequently, she said, had scripture passages vividly impressed on her as she gained assurance of salvation. And then early one Friday morning, while she was still laying in bed, she wrote, quote, these words, thy maker is thy husband, came rushing into her thoughts, she said, along with, quote, several notes of a sermon of a certain minister. And I think I know who that minister is. Uh, She became physically overwhelmed, she said, sick with love for Jesus. And the Spirit made her believe that Christ was indeed her spiritual husband. Margaret Clark A married 42-year-old saw one of the most remarkable visions described by any Canvas Lane convert. And a number of converts did report visions as part of their conversion ordeal at Canvas Lane and uh, many other settings of the Great Awakening. Um, For some time, Clark had experienced deep consternation over her sins, thinking that she could never be forgiven. But as she listened to one of Whitfield's sermons, she thought that she saw, quote, With my bodily eyes, Christ as hanging on the cross and a great light about him in the air. And it was strongly impressed on my mind that he was suffering there for my sins. Um, Evangelical pastors like William McCulloch, who recorded these testimonies, like uh, Clark and, and Lapse, were cautious, to say the least, about visions Uh, especially visions seen with the bodily eyes, okay? Uh, And that's opposed to visions that occur in the mind or the spirit realm. Um, Clark noted, probably with William McCulloch's prompting, I I suspect, 
that she had never seen the cross again with her bodily eyes, nor did she desire to see it again, and that she never, quote, laid any stress of my salvation upon my seeing this sight. I, th- I think McCulloch sort of encouraged her to say that because <laughs> he's a little nervous. But uh, um, anyway, Whitfield's spectacular ministry continued uh, to generate uh, much attention, but also hostility in personal encounters. Every, everywhere he went, he received hostile attacks. Um, uh, he survived several assassination attempts um, and attacks from lynch mobs during his career. Um, and he also much more commonly was, was attacked in print. Um, and the work at Canvas Lang only deepened his rift with the so-called Associate Presbytery of Scotland, uh, Whitfield, of course, is an Anglican, but he, he now is being attacked by the Associate Presbytery of Scotland, which was comprised of ministers, the seceders, who had recently broken from the established Church of Scotland. Um, and because Whitfield, befitting his interdenominational evangelical tendencies, would preach at both Associate Presbytery and Church of Scotland parishes, ah, uh, 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 you're not supposed to do that, uh, he he uh, was denounced by the Associate Presbytery in tracts such as the floridly titled, quote, Declaration, Protestation, and Testimony of the Suffering Remnant of the Anti-Popish, Anti-Lutheran, Anti-Prelatic, Anti-Whitfieldian, it goes on, uh, Anti-Erastian, Anti-Sectarian, True Presbyterian Church of Christ in Scotland. Uh, They're not done. Whitfield was, quote, an abjured prelatic or Anglican hireling as as lax toleration principles as any that ever set up for the advancing of the kingdom of Satan. And he was, they went on, he, he was a limb of Antichrist and a boar and wild beast from the anti-Christian field of England. Cambus Lang, they said, was a mere delusion of Satan. Instead of leading participants to reject the apostate churches of England and Scotland, this faux revival birthed corrupt interdenominational cooperation and false shows of enthusiastic ecstasy, the seceders insisted. Just one example of the kind of stuff that Whitfield got. Um, and so Whitfield was a man familiar with denominational and theological conflict. And if all we knew about Whitfield was his rhetorical skill, we might get the impression that he was all show and no substance. But nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Whitfield was, of course, no brilliant theologian uh, like his contemporary Edwards, but Really, isn't it unfair to compare anybody to Edwards? Uh, uh, But he was, Whitfield was, a solid, principled, Bible-centered, Calvinist, evangelical thinker. Uh, And if he was not solidly grounded in his theology, I think he could have saved himself a lot of time and energy because his career was marked by repeated difficulties with fellow evangelicals from the Wesley's Uh, to the German-based Moravians over key points of theology. And I'm I'm not going to go into that here, but but I certainly do in my book. Whitfield was, of course, the the first celebrity pastor of the evangelical movement. 
But in his case, popularity did not equal vacuity, um, nor need it so among celebrity pastors today, I, I would argue. Um, while his besetting feuds within the evangelical camp are troubling in one sense, uh, should Christ's followers not manifest more unity, there's another sense in which those theological battles are actually comforting because they tell us that doctrine mattered to George Whitfield. But what was the key to Whitfield's celebrity? I suspect that many of us would love to just have a taste of the kind of preaching and evangelistic success that George Whitfield did. Um, and I, there's a lot of things we could say about Whitfield's success and popularity, but uh, I, I want to make sure you understand. I would argue that God used Whitfield's, Whitfield powerfully in his ministry and that God gave him preaching and evangelistic gifts that Whitfield zealously employed. Um, Whitfield was also rooted in biblical doctrine, sound education. He was a, a, a graduate of Oxford, after all, and church history, all of which thoroughly informed his preaching. Um, because of Whitfield's rhetorical talents and mastery of media, sensationalism and the crass aspects of celebrity were always risks, but I don't think they, they captured Whitfield. This is not to say that he was a perfect man. Um, not at all, as anyone reading my biography will, will find out. Um, for example, his relationship with his wife was often hampered because of his ministry. She paid a serious price for his relentless travels. Um, the most disturbing aspect of Whitfield's career was his involvement with chattel slavery, which he worked hard to introduce to colonial Georgia, where he had founded the Bethesda Orphanage. Um, Georgia officials had initially banned slavery from the colony, uh, but Whitfield wanted that changed. Whitfield envisioned the orphanage thriving on the proceeds derived from Georgia plantations worked by slaves. Through the gifts of South Carolina plantation masters who converted under his ministry, Whitfield himself became a slave master in the 1740s. Although he had a few anti-slavery friends around him, his conscience seems never to been, have been especially stirred about that issue, and he did not free Bethesda's slaves at his death. Some critics of Whitfield today have understandably questioned whether we should admire this man at all, given his support for slavery. And that's a real problem about Whitfield. Um, I would say these sobering truths about Whitfield remind us that even great heroes of the faith still struggle with sin and limited vision. And for the Christian biographer, trying to hide or excuse such failings not only risks dishonesty, um, but it turns away from the biblical mode. It turns away from the biblical mode, where the greatest saints are often also great sinners, uh, from David to Peter to Paul. God, I don't have to tell you all, God, God graciously redeems and uses sinners in his kingdom work, and for that, I'm thankful. To return to the reasons for Whitfield's success, um, all of Whitfield's talent and preparation would have meant nothing if Whitfield had been averse to hard work, creative risk, and entrepreneurial ministry. Time won't allow me to unpack every detail here, but let's begin with the obvious. 
Uh, Whitfield made an incredible 13 transatlantic voyages to bring the gospel to the American colonies. Each one of these could have easily ended in Whitfield's death, and some nearly did. Uh, he knew the risks full well, but through prayer and converse, conversation with Christian associates, he determined to follow God's leading wherever it took him. He was never a model of physical health, both from bodily disposition and also because of the toll of his rigorous, some said reckless, uh, preaching tours. But working hard was not the whole story either. As many pastors have worked extremely hard but followed the same old paths in ministry tactics, Whitfield was an entrepreneur and especially as a young man, pioneered innovative methods in preaching and communication that keyed the attention his ministry garnered. The key developments here were his extemporaneous preaching methods, his field meetings, and especially his use of the latest forms of media and communications to spread the word. Note again, these tactics did not alter his basic message, or undermine his orthodoxy. But in an era when many pastors gave long sermons which might have been doctrinally sound, but which were as dull as dirt, uh, Whitfield revolutionized the sermonic form with a rhetorical style that captured the imaginations of the Anglo-American people. And those of you uh, who pastor local churches will note that Whitfield as an itinerant also had the advantage of really polishing a short list of memorized sermons instead of having to come up with new material every week. That's a real advantage. And when crowds could not fit into the era's small churches, or when local ministers banned Whitfield from their pulpits, which they routinely did, Whitfield shifted gears and went into the commons and the fields in order to reach the people where they were at. Uh, we've never done it. That way before, that was not a deal breaker for George Whitfield. Whitfield similarly employed the latest communications technology, especially cheap print and newspapers, to publicize his ministry and the gospel he preached. People began hearing about his travels months or even years in advance and were drawn by media to his work. Whitfield surrounded himself with the best experts in the new media of the time, most notably the Philadelphia printer and newspaper man Benjamin Franklin, with whom Whitfield became lifelong friends. And I'll say a lot more about this uh, tonight from Franklin's perspective. But theirs was a peculiar relationship because uh, Ben Franklin was no evangelical Christian. Franklin could readily ap appreciate the power of Whitfield's preaching, however. Quote, his eloquence had a wonderful power over the hearts and purses of his hearers, of which I myself was an instance, the printer wrote. Once in Philadelphia, Franklin attended one of the itinerant sermons. Suspecting that he would ask for money, Franklin wrote that he, quote, silently resolved he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistols in gold. As he proceeded, I began to soften and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that and determined me to give the silver. And he finished so admirably 
that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. This passage from Franklin's autobiography poked fun at Whitfield's requests for money uh, to help fund his Bethesda orphanage in Georgia. But Franklin was adamant that the revivalist had an impeccable character. Many spread rumors that Whitfield spent the charity's money on himself, but to Franklin, these charges were absurd. Whitfield was, quote, in all his conduct, a perfectly honest man. And methinks my testimony in his favor ought to have the more weight, as we had no religious connection, Franklin said. Because they both knew that Franklin was not a believer, Whitfield would routinely implore Franklin to accept Christ for salvation. For example, in 1752, he commended Franklin for his growing fame related to his scientific experiments. Quote, as you have made a pretty considerable progress in the mysteries of electricity, Whitfield said, I would now humbly recommend to your diligent, unprejudiced pursuit and study the mystery of the new birth. One at whose bar we are shortly to appear hath solemnly declared that without it we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. In spite of Whitfield's prodding, Franklin recalled in his autobiography that the itinerant would, quote, sometimes pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Nevertheless, Franklin insisted that he admired Whitfield's character and benevolent ministry. At Whitfield's death, Franklin wrote, quote, I knew him, I knew him intimately upwards of 30 years. His integrity and zeal in prosecuting every good work, I have never seen equaled. I shall never see exceeded. In any case, Whitfield's relentless effort in entrepreneurial methods emerged from his conviction that the gospel demanded tireless work and creative tactics. Far from being a sign of theological shallowness, doctrinal conviction actually drove his innovations and in method. Again, Whitfield had glaring personal inconsistencies, but there can be little doubt about his commitment to proclaiming the new birth of salvation through Christ. It took him to an early grave on his last visit to America in 1770. The gospel was that important. God's grace was that wonderful. And God had promised to draw the lost to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. To Whitfield, there was no greater imperative. Thank you very much.